Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not-always-perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live-stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. last couple weeks we've been on a series called This is the Message, and we're going to be continuing that series this morning. It is on the letter of 1 John. Uh, We mentioned that the churches addressed in this letter were facing some challenges. There were people who had come into the church and were teaching a distorted version of Jesus. These people claimed to have authority to do so. And they were sneaking into the churches and delivering their corrupt message. And I think it's hard for us Christians to, for us modern Christians to imagine what this was like. You know, nobody's coming up to the front and taking the mic away from the preacher's hand. But we have to understand their context was completely different than ours. You know, these Christians, they met in house churches throughout the Roman Empire, and these were often isolated from one another. In the early years, there were no formal creeds to give doctrinal guidance to what was taught. They likely had the first five books of the Bible, maybe a few letters from the apostles, and uh, a handful of stories about Jesus that were communicated orally. And so these were the days before podcasts and Zoom meetings, when churches relied on emissaries from the apostles that would teach and relay information. Communication was slow, and problems came when people who falsely claimed to be emissaries came teaching and preaching their own messages. And so this meant that the churches were often susceptible to deception And what the early leaders strived to do, what they strived to do was to maintain the integrity of the gospel message and keep Jesus' followers from being deceived. We modern Christians do have an advantage. You know, we've got uh, the completed Bible. We've got 2,000 years of church history and tradition. We've got formal creeds. But that doesn't mean that we're immune to the challenges faced by the early church. Often we're having to navigate a prosperity gospel. It's one that says, give God your time and your money and he will fulfill your American dream. Or the idea that God causes suffering, which believes that suffering is the punishment for human sin. Another is the pressure to make Jesus whatever we want. You know, you can have guru Jesus, you can have genie Jesus, you can have surfer Jesus, whatever you'd like. But these can be difficult for us to navigate. And so this next chapter in 1 John is just as relevant for us as it was for the early church. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and it says this. 
Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Pretty intense passage. Um, But I want to start with uh, a story here. Um, being, my name is Ro, my name, I'm Mexican, born and raised in L.A., and being Mexican means that my family has recipes for almost every traditional Mexican dish. These recipes weren't found on Google um, or Pinterest. These were handed down generations to generation. And altering the recipes or substituting the ingredients is often taboo. If I were to make a dish using the ingredients that weren't authentic, the women who raised me would say, así no es como te enseñé, meaning that's not how we taught you. There's a sacredness that comes with with what was originally passed down. And when it comes to food, Mexican moms and abuelas are all about keeping it. My favorite dish is one called aguachile, and this is a picture of it here. Delicious, I know. Um, we're all salivating. But it's, it's shrimp cooked in chili, lemon juice, cucumber, and onion, and it reminds me of Sunny San Blas, a beach in Mexico where I last saw my grandpa, Raul Sr., um, the third. Um, But whenever I have this dish, I feel close to my family. It represents my heritage, and the best part of it all is that it's delicious. It combines spice with freshness, the tanginess of lemon with the crunch of cucumber. It's the perfect summer dish, and if I could have this every day of the week, I absolutely would. But substituting the ingredients of this dish changes the story and its sentiment. You know, John is acting like an abuela, reminding her hijos and her hijas to keep the original ingredients of the gospel, encouraging the church to keep the original message and not to alter it or substitute it with anything less than Jesus. Because to say Jesus was something that he's not doesn't just change a detail of the story, but it misses all of its power. And so the power is missed because the story of Jesus is that he is the long-awaited king. The one hoped for from the beginning. The one who rescues creation from the power of sin and death. The one who makes all wrongs right and destroys all the powers 
of evil. Jesus is the king who establishes and is establishing his kingdom today. And he wants us to see him so that we can experience the fullness of his love, of his goodness, of his power. And when we deliberately add or take away from him, we miss the most exciting part, experiencing his kingdom come. An example here is um, Cesar Chavez. He was a prominent leader in the fight for justice for farm workers in California and beyond. And what many aren't aware of is how his Christian faith was core to his fight. He believed that Jesus was the source of all justice. The marches he led included many Catholic images and artwork. The United Farm Workers demonstrations even included times set apart for communion and singing. Chavez even fasted for long periods of time because he knew that he needed to access a heavenly power. He knew that he wasn't just fighting against injustices, but the forces that perpetuate it. He needed the power of Jesus to sustain him. And the Sermon on the Mount was, the, one, it was one of the core messages that influenced his nonviolent approach. His entire mission and vision stemmed from his trust in Jesus and acknowledgement of his kingdom. And so he started with Jesus. But after strides of success in the farm workers' movement, things began to decline. By the late 70s, Chavez alone held power in his organization. He exhibited signs of paranoia, and he substituted Jesus and um, his kingdom for the teachings and practices of a New Age religion called Sinanon. The Sinanon cult was known for engaging in attack therapy, and they instilled fear into their followers. And so Chavez went from saying things like, Jesus is the source of all justice, to saying things like, I use my aura to run this union. By the time Chavez died, the UFW plummeted in membership from 80,000 to 5,000. And so among many factors, we can also say that Chavez's downfall came when he substituted Jesus with something else. He was devoted to Jesus, but he ended up putting his trust and devotion elsewhere. For Chavez, Jesus was no longer king, so the signs of the kingdom ceased. And we're not exempt because you and I are made to trust. We're made to put our trust in and people, and things. It's what we're made for. It's built in us. I like to call it devotion or worship. We were made for devotion. And part of this is why we can feel so small when we stare into the depths of the Grand Canyon, or why we feel a swell of emotion when we look out over the ocean at a sunset. And it's why we can give ourselves entirely to someone or something because devotion is what we were made for. Or as Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. 
The problem isn't that we're prone to worship. The problem is that we can fall into worshiping and devoting ourselves to the wrong thing. And if we're honest, the wrong thing seems pretty attractive at times. The thing calling for my trust and devotion is rarely something I find repulsive or disgusting. It's attractive, it feels good, it's convenient, or it aligns with us. These are competing gospels and their messages are all around us. They, they sound a little bit like this. They say, look this way and you'll have the partner of your dreams. They promise, make this much and your life will count for something. And they declare, trust in yourself and question everything. These false gospels give us the impression that on the other side of Jesus and his kingdom, the grass is greener. They promise that apart from Jesus, you can be your own God. That apart from his kingdom, you can build your own kingdom. And the things fighting for our trust and devotion are no friends of Jesus or his kingdom. They're not obvious. Rarely can we put a face to them. These are subtle and they lurk in the least expected places. Often it's even in the air we breathe. You know, the life of faith and trust in God is sidelined by hyper-emphasizing reason and sensibility. And we're not against these, you know, but the Enlightenment period taught us to put these above God, and he calls us to an upside-down kingdom that often runs against our logic. These entice us with false promises and the false narratives they create. Ultimately, what these tempt you and I to do is to betray our trust in the one who created us. And so it's for this reason that John says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Um, I was a barista for about five years, and I served coffee um, at the Ace in downtown, and it was, it was a blast. Um, I really enjoyed it. We served Stumptown Coffee, and I got to do several, training, uh, several trainings at their location in the Arts District. I learned about the origin and history of coffee. I got familiar with the culture and product of Stumptown. And one particular part of my training was sampling coffee. Sampling coffee. We pulled so many espresso shots that day, we were out of our minds. We were incredibly caffeinated, super jittery. We were bouncing off the walls. And that's just 10 minutes in. Um, but, but we tried various kinds of coffee, and we had to be able to recognize the taste notes of each. We were given this flavor wheel. And we had to taste coffee and identify and describe each coffee using the flavor wheel. And we had developed our taste buds to recognize when an espresso shot was extracted well our flavor palette became the way we would test whether or not we were making coffee correctly. When the coffee was extracted properly, we tasted the richness of the flavors like chocolate, butter, caramel. 
and when it was extracted poorly, it tasted like metal. It was bitter and acidic. And so John is saying, when you hear these messages, he's not saying if you hear these messages. He's saying when, because they will come. He says, when you hear these messages, I want you to be able to taste what is being given to you. He's saying, taste it because there are some messages out there that look good, but they taste like metal, they're bitter, they're acidic, and they have nothing to do with Jesus. And we can only recognize what is consistent with Jesus when we've been with him, when we know the sound of his voice, when we know what his kingdom is about. We know what is from God when we've tasted the goodness of God, when we develop a taste palette for the things of God. That's when we can identify what is from him and what isn't. And between, at my Stumptown training, between tasting different types of coffee, we needed a palate cleanser. Otherwise, our taste buds wouldn't recognize the richness of the flavors we were tasting. And some of us may have tasted versions of the gospel that have left bitter tastes in our mouth. We've seen a distorted picture of Jesus, one that maybe is angry, one that is accusing, one that sides with the oppressor rather than the victim, and one that is lifeless. Or maybe we've been sold a prosperity gospel that, per, that puts our kingdom at the center rather than his. Others of us still may have taste buds for the things that are not of Jesus. We may be putting our trust in ourselves and other people, or we may be trusting a formula. You know, if I get that good job, then I'll be successful. Or if I do this for God, then God will give me what I want. But what the Spirit wants to do is he wants to cleanse our palates and remind us again of the richness and the goodness of God so that we can renew our trust in him. And so with so many competing messages, how does the church respond? How do we navigate through these narratives and ideas Sometimes we may need, a, we may need um, sometimes we feel the need to fight back, to defend, and to go on the offense. You'll see this a lot on Facebook comments. Um, others may, need, may feel the need to withdraw, to separate oneself, to go to a bubble or, or you know, drive out to the desert and just withdraw from society because it is corrupt or... Um, sinful. Others of us may, in our pluralistic culture, feel the social pressure to give in, to add to the gospel and create a jambalaya Jesus. But notice what the passage says, verse 4. It says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. The Greek word for overcome is nikau. And it means to be victorious, to, to prevail, to win. And we win by acknowledging that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is greater than any force, any message, any person in the world. We overcome not by anything we do, but by who we trust. 
We overcome not by any fight we engage in, but by trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. And so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to withdraw into the desert. We don't need to go on the offense and engage in um, Facebook fights to defend why we believe in Christianity. And Jesus isn't lacking, so there's no need to add or take away from him. We trust and we overcome by declaring that Jesus is king, not just of our lives, but of the whole world. And when we do this, we see the signs of the kingdom. The oppressed can be set free. The sick can be healed. The wrongs can be made right. People live into their calling. People who are least among us have a place of honor at the table. The last are first. The activity of the kingdom is evidence that we've overcome. And so I'm thankful for a church that prays for God's kingdom activity because the purpose of church is to be the place where God's kingdom is revealed, where it's manifested, where it becomes real and tangible in our midst. God's kingdom is more exciting than any church program we can put on, than any event we can put together because the kingdom is what you and I were made for. When we live for the kingdom, Jesus says, everything else, all the details, all the things that keep us awake at night, all the things we're afraid of, he says it's all taken care of. And I know at the moment there there seems to be a lot of fear and anxiety. And Jesus says to us, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. The one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And often I've, I've experienced this in my own life, but when I'm afraid, when we're afraid, we often go for the life vests. We go for the rafts. We try to jump ship. But Jesus is the captain of the ship who's unsinkable. Nations rise and fall, money comes and goes, and everything fluctuates, but the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you and I can trust him. We can surrender to him, and as we do, we'll find that he cares for our souls. And so what is our trust in today? What messages, what ideas, what narratives have we surrendered to? The pandemic shook every part of our society. I remember getting laid off at the start and thinking, what now? What now? This job that I had put my faith in, this structure that I had trusted in, that I had relied on, was suddenly shaken. Nothing is immovable Nothing is fixed. It's like something was revealed. It's like a curtain was pulled back. And what we saw was that everything can be shaken. And so I'm grateful for a king that says, trust me, I have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so let us not be afraid. Let us instead seek Jesus and his kingdom and abandon every comparing narrative every competing story. I love what verse 6 says. 
verse 6, calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. Because he's the one that reveals Jesus to us. The spirit also reminds us of who Jesus says that he is. And some of us need to be reminded that Jesus has got our back. Some of us may need to be reminded that God is kind, that he likes you. Others of us may need to be reminded that suffering isn't caused by him. We may need to be reminded that we're forgiven. Some of us need to be reminded that God is the one looking after our children. And so we don't need to be afraid. Others of us need to be released from messages that have been placed on us. Messages like, you don't matter, you're a disappointment, you can't do anything right. We may need to be released from stories that we've been told. That it was our fault, that we're forever dirty, that we don't belong. But the Spirit shows us who Jesus is. And what he says about us, which then changes the stories we've been told. In other words, the competing stories, the competing narratives, the competing messages lose power when we see Jesus and his kingdom. This is part of the kingdom reality that Jesus is set to establish. And so for a long time, I wanted to change my name. I felt my name was too complex. I know it's only four letters. Um, but teachers always had a hard time pronouncing my name. And so for a short amount of time, I went by the name Bob. True story. I know. Of all the names, I said, what's the simplest name? And I went with that. My apologies to anyone named Bob. Um, but it worked for about a year. It worked for about a year. Teachers were calling me this. My classmates were calling me this. I was like, sweet. Nobody's getting my name messed up anymore. But looking back, I wondered, what were the messages that I was hearing that made me want to change my name? What messages was I hearing that made me want to change my name? And I think there were several. One being that my name and language were embarrassing. That my name was not normal. And that I don't belong. And so for years I trusted those messages. That my worth came from something other than who God had called me to be. It made me ashamed of my heritage. It made me want to blend in. It made me not want to be brown. I bought into the shame narrative. And Jesus has been unraveling this message that I trusted for so long. And it has been the most freeing. I mentioned that Jesus, in his kingdom, he sets captives free. Well, I was captive to this social narrative. I bought into it. But Jesus has shown me that my name, my ethnicity, is celebrated and embraced in his kingdom because you and I were made in the image of God. 
He wants to unravel the messages and the stories that have been holding us captive. But we have to first surrender to him. To trust him. Because only then can he free us. And in his kingdom, we're free to be our true selves. And so the competing messages never told me that they loved me. The competing messages never gave up anything for me. They don't have a face. They're not relational. They don't know me. But Jesus, on the other hand, has a face. He knows me. He knows you. He's relational. He gave up everything. And he says, you can trust me. Here's how you can know. Just look at the cross. The cross of Jesus demonstrates his love for us, his commitment to us. And the resurrection confirms that he is who he says he is. That he is the one we were made for. That he's the savior of the world. That he comes to restore, to redeem, to renew that nothing is irredeemable. No one is irredeemable. And that he keeps his word. And that his kingdom cannot be shaken. And that this message that John is communicating to us, this gospel message, has the power to change and disarm anything that may be weighing us down. So if I can have the band come up. And so because of who Jesus is, because of what he does, because of the kingdom that he's establishing, we don't have to be afraid. And so let us surrender ourselves to him again. If we're trusting other narratives, other messages, let us just leave it by the wayside. And come back to the one who knows us, to the one who is unshakable, and the one who is worthy of our trust. And so we're going to sing a song. And as we do, I invite you to stand and reflect a bit. What messages have we bought into? What ideas, what stories are we trusting? And how do they hold up against the gospel? How do they hold up next to Jesus and his kingdom? And just ask the Holy Spirit, God, what do I need to surrender? Because in that place is where we become fully alive.